Two and a Half Admins, episode 110. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you've got a couple of plugs, Alan. The first one is an article deploying FreeBSD on Oracle Cloud. Yes. Uh, so Oracle Cloud has a free tier. A little different than the Amazon one, you get quite a bit more and you can get up to four separate VMs if you want. But we have a great article about how to deploy FreeBSD in the Oracle Cloud, including their new ARM-based cloud instances. Okay. And uh, you had a chat with Wendell from Level 1 Techs. Yeah. So Wendell contracted my company to do some data recovery on one of his client's large ZFS pools where they had uh, failed to maintain it properly and got themselves into some trouble. And Wendell and I talked about how we recovered the data and some of the changes we'll be open sourcing to the recovery tools to help anybody else who happens to be trying to recover data from ZFS in the future. Yeah, and you might have even heard of the client, maybe. I hadn't. You might have seen the video about the client that the client did when they screwed everything up. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Let's do some news then. The first one, how three hours of inaction from Amazon cost cryptocurrency holders $235,000. This isn't so much about the cryptocurrency aspect of it. It's more about Amazon. Well, actually, what I would say is more about bad security practices and not necessarily on the behalf of Amazon. This was basically a BGP hijacking. Somebody announced a more specific route for a specific slash 24 of Amazon's IPs, routing those 256 IPs to their network instead of Amazon's specifically targeting some node in some junk coins infrastructure and then convincing people to send them cryptocurrency. It's not going to be a surprise to anybody that I or really any of the three of us are crapping on cryptocurrency here, but the nature of cryptocurrency absolutely amplified the value of hijacking Amazon's BGP routes in a way that would not have been possible before cryptocurrency. If you stole BGP routes to PayPal, for example, it would be a lot harder to make off with money as easily and as rapidly as the attackers here did, you know, with this crypto stuff. And irreversibly as well. Certainly irreversibly also adds to the damage. But all of it, really. I mean, you know, there's there's downsides to designing a protocol around the idea that anybody should trivially be able to move money pseudo-anonymously from anywhere to anywhere with a bare minimum of regulation, it's a perfect storm of I really want to lose my money. And when you cap it up with the, you know this idea that code is law, well, I didn't want to lead with this because it seemed too easy. But now that I've voiced these particular statements, objections, whatever you want to call it, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. The odds are that a lot of that $235,000 was going to leave those people's pockets one way or another before much longer. The crux of the issue seems to be that somebody hijacked the BGP route so those IP addresses would go to their network instead of Amazon's. But in particular, they then were able to use that to get a TLS certificate for the host name that the other cryptocurrency users would try to use to connect to that host. So they were able to basically demonstrate that they had control of the domain good enough to get an SSL certificate. Of course, they used an actual certificate authority, not Let's Encrypt, which seems like an odd choice in this case. But it might be that Let's Encrypt has better handling to make sure that uh, this doesn't happen. But in this case, because the DNS still pointed to those IP addresses, it meant that the host name they were trying to get still pointed there, but to the machine that they controlled, and they were able to get an SSL certificate for the domain. And then all the clients that connected to it trusted that SSL certificate, which goes to show kind of the problem with domain control verified 
SSL certificates is it turns out they don't actually prove very much. Let's Encrypt included. It just proves that you had control of at least the DNS or the website where this was going. And so they were able to do this. And then they basically posted their own version of a smart contract or whatever. And that caused all this money to to move wherever they wanted it to. <laughs> and I found it pretty amusing. The big thing here is it's obvious that the people running these crypto networks aren't aware of some of the protections they could have been using against this type of thing, including TLSA records saying that, yes, my TLSA certificate might change all the time because I'm using Less Encrypt or something, but it'll always be a certificate from this provider or that provider, not go get SSL in Latvia. <laughs> <laughs> or using DNSSEC and things so that somebody can't spoof a record saying, you know, proving the that they own the domain when they don't. Or just in your DNS, publishing, this is the SSL key you should be seeing when you go to our website. Not just any TLS certificate that the name matches on, but this specific one is the one that's valid. And then that would have required the attacker control both DNS and the IP addresses. And then, you know, something like DNSSEC would have made sure that they couldn't actually publish bogus DNS records. Whereas with none of that protection, all they had to do was control the IP address, and then they could get their own TLS certificate that said, yeah, this host definitely is really cbridge-prod2.seller.network. And then your wallet gave away all your money. Yeah, you know, the, the whole code is law concept. There is something genuinely appealing in that idea. I think the important part is that you can't just say code is law and treat it like it's just code. It works better the other way around. Like, I think it would be at least as appealing and a lot more sensible to say law should be code. Imagine if there were a formal semantic system that you could parse law with. Something that made laws as clear and unambiguous as code can be. But you would still need to treat it with all the gravity of actual laws to begin with. You can't just say, well, we've got some code chucked up on GitHub and that's law now. That approach does not work. And that's, this really underlies a lot of the, let's be honest here, contempt that you hear from the three of us and from plenty of other people on the internet about cryptocurrency. That gravitas, that like, we need to treat this like it's real money. We need to treat $100,000 worth of crypto with the same care that we would treat $100,000 worth of fiat currency or say the mortgage to your house. Like that's the piece that's missing. You have to actually take it seriously. Well, and the other thing is like, who's ever written code that doesn't have bugs in it? Yeah, but who's ever written a law that doesn't have bugs in it? Right. But the difference is that code is interpreted by a machine, which will do exactly what you said, not what you meant, what you said. Mm. Whereas laws, we tend to purposely leave them with a bit of wiggle room to be interpreted because we found that that generally leads to better outcomes. And so when you make code law, you have to understand that the robot is going to do exactly what you tell it to do, including stab you in the face. <laughs> code can have just as much wiggle room in it as human written laws does. It's just you have to be specific about, you know, where the wiggle room is. You label an outcome bucket wiggle room and you dump some of the stuff in there when you're not sure what else to do with it. But you, you still have, you know, these concrete decisions, this process that takes you from the input to the output. And the stuff in the wiggle room 
is already designed, like, okay, a human needs to review this and needs to do something with it. Now, sometimes you're also going to get outcomes that you did not want coming out, not in the wiggle room bucket, in the hell yes or the hell no bucket. And you also are supposed to have a process by which you go, you say, okay, we found a bug in this and we need to go back and address that. That doesn't necessarily immediately change this one outcome. And again, this workflow already exists in law. There are any number of circumstances where, you know, a law had an unintended outcome and that outcome was honored in courts, but then it goes right back to the legislature and they change the law. So that doesn't happen anymore. Or you may have a special, you know, mitigation for the one person that found guilt that was found guilty of the law that probably shouldn't have been written that way, but it doesn't change the outcome. And it's never a bad thing that you can actually parse it into a repeatable, definable, predictable result. All those things are good. It's just, yes, wiggle room does need to be part of the system, but it should be codified just like everything else is. What Amazon could have done about this is a little interesting. The article is going on about how Amazon didn't react very immediately and, and issue a, a more specific route for it, although they shouldn't have had to. What was really missing here is an ROA or record of authority, which basically is how Amazon can say these IP addresses will only ever be announced from Amazon's ASNs, not from Joe Bob's ASN in the UK or something, and cryptographically ensure that their networks don't get hijacked, but a lot of cloud providers are not doing that. A large portion of the internet community doesn't participate in that yet, and that's why BGP hijacks are still a thing. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. The challenge with endpoint security has always been that it's difficult to scale, and when remote work took over, the challenge got exponentially harder. You need visibility into your fleet of devices in order to meet security goals and reduce service desk tickets. But how do you get that visibility when different parts of your company run on Mac, Windows, and Linux? You get Collide. Collide is an endpoint security solution that gives IT teams a single dashboard for all devices, regardless of their operating system. Collide gives you real-time access to your fleet's data and can do things that traditional MDMs can't. And instead of installing intrusive agents or locking down devices, Collide takes a user-focused approach that communicates security recommendations to your employees directly on Slack. You can answer every question you have about your fleet without intruding on your workforce. Visit collide.com slash 25A to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. Shall we dunk on Cloudflare again then? They've announced Turnstile, a friendly, privacy-preserving alternative to capture. Where does one even begin? <laughs> I can see part of their point of, you know, if you have to do a Google Capture and it's like, what of these is a bus or a crosswalk? It's like, well, I know what you're using these for. Uh, and it's not great. Like in the past when it used to be words from books they were scanning or whatever for the Project Gutenberg. And I was kind of okay with participating in that. But now when it's obvious that it's Training their AI to run people over. No, to not run them over. I didn't come up. Well, to try not to run people over. I don't know how successful it's going to be. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah. You can't prove that, Joe. <laughs> All you know is the algorithm identifies humans in crosswalks. You don't know what it's going to do with that information. Yeah. And I know that even me sitting here in the UK, I get told to identify a crosswalk. We don't know what that is. So this is not so much a regional problem as just not all humans possess a sufficient lack of ignorance, I suppose. I mean, I do obviously know what a crosswalk is, but I'm just playing devil's advocate here. 
You know, that's a fair point, though, because one of ReCAPTCHA's favorite things is to ask you to identify traffic lights. And it uses traffic lights from all over the fucking world. And frankly, some of them don't look like traffic lights to my American eyes. And I'm like, uh, I'm not sure. I see like a little bit of something kind of like bluish green, like off in the corner of that. Like, does that count or not? It feels kind of like taking those multiple choice exams, you know, when you're in grade school and your teacher has absolutely not figured out the value of unambiguously correct and incorrect answers. And you're like, any three of these could work. (laughs) Isn't that the point of it, though, that they want human intelligence to train the AI? They want you to spend those several seconds working out, is that or isn't that, and making a value judgment? At one time, that was probably the point. Currently, I seriously doubt humans can do a better job of identifying any of those images than Google's already trained models can. Well, I think they're mostly, they're checking to see if Google agrees with it, to feedback loop into it to know when it got it wrong or when it is ambiguous. Right, but my point is, I I don't think that we are still providing useful training or retraining data to any significant degree. I think that point in our evolution of training image recognition algorithms is probably done with. Well, the interesting part there is if our image recognition algorithms are so good, then the bots are going to be able to solve the captures better than humans are. Yeah, the bots already can solve the captures at least as well as the humans, uh, certainly a lot quicker and probably with very similar degrees of accuracy, maybe higher. The reason that it still has value beyond, you know, however it feeds into Google ad sales, which Google claims that it doesn't, but as Cloudflare points out, they are an ad sales company. But it still has value because basically it's a proof of work scheme. Whether the bot can complete it or not, even if the bot can complete it as rapidly as a human can, it makes it more expensive to game whatever's being protected at scale. So now you're changing the value ratio where you say, okay, how much does it cost me to get my bot in to do the thing I want the bot to do versus what do I get back out of it? That's true. And, you know, admittedly, outside of private browsing and so on, I don't get prompted to actually solve CAPTCHAs very often. I get the, you know, tick the box that you're not a robot type thing. The tick the box to prove you're not a robot thing is is another excellent example. I mean, obviously, a pretty simple script can manage that. But you're doing a few things with those boxes. One, uh, you're decreasing the rate that you can manage to get any single session to get through to get to the other side. You're adding complexity to the task of the dev for whatever is doing the attacking. And finally, again, you're making it more computationally expensive to run. It is going to cost more of your resources, whether you're paying for them or whether you've got a botnet in your pocket. Either way, you have ultimately a finite set of resources and you're being forced to expend more of them to get at the target. If you make that expensive enough, it's no longer worth it to get to the target and you give up and go the hell away, which is ultimately the real goal of any of those systems. Well, similar to Cloudflare here, Google does also use JavaScript to watch your mouse cursor and the way you move it and to make decisions so that, you know, you can't just run a JavaScript snippet that will check the box. It would notice that was different than the way a human would have done it. And that's another part of the scheme. And that's one that I think uh, that Cloudflare is talking about, you know, there's doing the same thing because, again, Cloudflare's interest in this is to keep bots out of websites because they're trying to protect websites from attacks because that's their business model. It's not really a detection technique. It still ultimately functions as proof of work and making it more expensive to get in. Because if you believe you can't train a neural network to move a mouse cursor in a human-like way, I got some oceanfront property in Kansas to sell you. (laughs) (laughs) I've also seen the way some humans use a mouse 
if I saw a recording of that, I would probably assume it was a monkey or, or a turtle. That is an excellent point, and it's it's worth rephrasing and restating that point a little bit. Uh, all these things that, you know, will keep you out if you don't move the mouse in a human-like fashion, that has a real impact on, you know, large classes of disabled folks who mm. cannot move a mice, um, a mouse, you know, in a, quote, human-like, unquote, fashion. Yeah, like even my grandfather had to have uh, one of the trackball mice with they use with his thumb. Because with the the palsy he had, he had to like grip the base really tightly and use his thumb to navigate. Uh, because with a regular mouse, it would be shaking so much he could never actually click the thing he was trying to target. Yeah, prime example. So Cloudflare is trying to move this technology on, but it just, I don't know, they talk about it being private and stuff, but... Well, I love the, the exact phrasing here. Less data collection. <laughs> yeah. Not no data collection, just less data collection. And not privacy, just... More privacy than Google. So is there any merit to what Cloudflare are doing here? I'm against the concept of monoculture. So having another capture provider, I think is a good thing. But does it have to be freaking Cloudflare? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we need like five. And because, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Cloudflare at all. Long before all the recent shenanigans. And so yay to have more options. But can we also have some good options? Yeah, maybe Amazon and Facebook could do it as well. I said good options. <laughs> You're not listening to the brief. <laughs> Apt install captcha bot. Free and open source captchas. No, you just dream in, Jim. Every day, Joe. Every day. But, you know, it comes down to how do we make hosting a large-scale captcha system make, well, not even have to make money, but pay for itself to have a, a good neutral one instead of only being a service of companies that are using the data for their own purposes in one way or another. I just told you how. Apt install CaptchaBot. Run your own CAPTCHA service with your website. Don't make it tied to any specific hosting provider. But that's not going to have the advantage of the scale of seeing how bots all over the world are reacting and being able to shut them out. And so I'm wondering how we could scale that up slightly. You could store all that information on a blockchain and everyone could be connected to it. No, that would be too slow and expensive and, you know, climate destroying. That was a joke, but you could have a centralized database. Right, but who's going to run the centralized database? I was like, I don't know. I feel like we, we need more of this kind of neutral open infrastructure stuff. Something like ICANN or the, the things we've set up to run domain names, except for not terrible like ICANN. I think if you want a commercial entity to be, you know, running the thing. I don't really want it to be commercial, per se. Except that that's where you keep leading us. If you don't want it to be commercial, then, you know, you you make it a thing that appeals to nerds to spin up a node. It's something that will distribute well. So for the same reasons that people would fold proteins or that people would spin up Tor nodes, you know, you, you get that social incentive to be a part of the solution. But now that we moved it on from the Kumbaya, if you do want to talk about corporate involvement, I think it makes more sense for InfoSec companies to be doing that. When you talk about the people who are used to having sensors widely deployed, figuring out like what the bad actors are doing. All right, well, let's talk about, you know, I don't know, Black Duck or Sophos or, you know, you name it. The people who are already doing exactly that kind of thing for malware. And ultimately, that's, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about malware prevention. Yeah, so I guess comes back almost to the other space that Cloudflare is also in, the, the public resolvers, like uh, Cisco bought OpenDNS and a bunch of the ones like that. Although 
I like the idea of a federated thing that could work, but I was thinking more just, we just need like a, a nonprofit internet infrastructure provider run by a bunch of geeky people, but with some funding to just keep the lights on for the internet. What about someone like the Linux Foundation or Mozilla? Linux Foundation is a bad example because that's technically a trade association of all the companies that do Linux, and it's very pay-to-play. Mm. So it's the wrong kind of nonprofit. It's still better than just handing the reins to Google. Yes, but kind of to Jim's point, the problem we see with Mozilla sometimes, and things like ICANN, is that when we give too much power to them, they kind of run off and try to do silly things with it. Yeah. And it might be that that's just how that's always going to work. And the only way to do it is with something federated, like Jim was recommending. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to leno.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's leno.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. And do send in your questions. And remember, the shorter and more concise, the better. But another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Nick has done. He writes, I'd like to know the best way to have a NAS without a real NAS setup. Basically, I have a bunch of computers set up as a Proxbox cluster, so I'd like to keep all of those computers in the cluster. I purchased a pair of drives to use with ZFS, but I'm unsure on where to go from there. Jim has mentioned problems with the default settings for ZFS in Proxmox, so I stopped at that point and have the disks sitting there powered up for a couple of months now without any data. I'm a little curious what you're asking about the Proxmox cluster. Like you say you bought only a pair of disks, so I'm assuming you just want to set up ZFS in one of the Proxmox machines. But you also mentioned you want to keep all the other computers in that cluster. And I'm wondering why you think that one thing will have to do with the other. But as far as actually using ZFS on Proxmox, the main thing you'd have to consider is changing some of the default settings. And we're mostly talking about the ones that apply after you set up the pool. So it's not anything overly difficult. Your best bet here is I threw a link in the show notes to uh, an article I made Jim write on how to tune the record size on ZFS, especially for the case of virtualization or file storage. And it'll guide you through changing some of those settings. Actually, Jim, I don't know. Do you want to throw a link to the your your bug entry with Proxmox in there? Because you also kind of spell out exactly what the problems with the defaults are in that. Yeah, let's let's chuck both of those in the uh, in the show notes. I suspect that the the whole cluster thing boils down to Nick is probably talking about a compute cluster, not a storage cluster. Mm-hmm. 
It sounds like Nick is hoping to use one of the Proxmox machines as the storage, like the the singular storage for the whole cluster. So ultimately, it doesn't really matter as far as the rest of the question, I, I don't think. And neither Alan nor I are expert enough in Proxmox to tell you the, you know, the best Proxmox-friendly way to do that. I would assume it's going to boil down to, uh, you know, having an iSCSI target and, uh, you know, accessing the drives via the iSCSI target, regardless of which compute node is actually running the VM at that point in time. But moving on to the ZFS side of it, the big issues with Proxmox's defaults, it wants you to use ZVols, which frequently don't perform as well as raw files or QCOW2 files do, unfortunately. And it uh, it uses 8K as the vault block size. The bigger problem of the two is going to depend on your workload, honestly. But the 8K vault block size, that's going to be appropriate for something like a PostgreSQL VM, which uses 8K pages. It's probably not going to be appropriate for most other workloads because what you might potentially gain in lower latency on you know small I.O., you're going to lose very rapidly in amplified I.O. when you need to do larger file operations. And you're also going to have the problem that your compression ratios are not going to be very good because the vol block size is so low and you can't compress beyond a block boundary in ZFS. Whether you're talking about record size with data sets or vol block size in ZVols, you start out with 8K of raw data. Now, if your A shift equals 12, that means you've got 4K sectors. So the best compression ratio you can achieve is 50%, and you can only get down that low if that one individual block will get at or below 50%. If it will compress to 75%, you get nothing. It's just not compressed because you can't split the sectors up. Yeah, you you can't save half a sector, so your your compression savings are limited to whole sectors. Mm-hmm. And so, if you have a very small vol block size, then you're not going to see the same amount of compression. On top of the fact that the more data you feed into the compressor, the more redundant data it can find to remove. Mm-hmm. So you will get better compression ratios from larger block sizes to begin with. On top of the fact that if your minimum savings is increments of four K with only an eight K record, you either save half of the two sectors or you save no sectors. Whereas if you're using 32K, you can save four, eight or 12 or 16K depending on the data. In case it's not clear yet, let's say that you've got a one terabyte VM image and every 8K chunk of that can compress down to 75% of its original size. Well, if your vol block size is 8K, then your compression ratio won't be 75%. It will be nothing. You'll still take a whole terabyte plus the metadata overhead. Whereas if you use, say, 32K, then you would actually be able to save one whole sector off each of those at least. And you might actually see something like savings of about 20 or 25%. Yep. My usual just generic recommendation for record size or vol block size for VMs, I recommend to at least start out with 64K. And, you know, if you need to do tuning from there, then figure out which direction you need to go, what your workload looks like, and then you can do more specific tuning. But in the absence of a clearly stated, like, this is my workload, yeah, I would start out with 64K. That's the default cluster size for uh, the QCOW2 VM backing format. And I have found that it is a really quite a good generic, just take a stab at it and go. And if you have a lot of smaller sector access, maybe going down to 32 is worth it, but it's hard to say. There's probably also a difference between using a a QCOW file directly, so if you're running the VM on the same machine as the Proxmox, versus if you're doing it over iSCSI, because you're exposing that as a disk, it's going to actually expose as having 
4K sectors as well, in which case the default on the vault block size might be more correct. Although upstream and OpenZFS, they've changed the default from 8K to 16K specifically because of these problems. So I think it at least would behoove Proxmox to follow suit in their defaults. Or next time they upgrade to newer ZFS, it will change out from underneath them maybe. Maybe you can chime in on that bug report thread, Alan, and uh, point out. <laughs> yeah, I can I can put the, the link to the commit in upstream ZFS where they changed the default from 8K to 16K. Now, I know Nick said he'd like to keep all of the computers in the cluster. Is not a very simple solution to this. Just take one of them out of the cluster and install Ubuntu or FreeBSD on it and just get great defaults out of the box. Well, no. If you're willing to fiddle with it, there's no reason Nick can't do anything that he wants to do with Proxmox itself. You can create a VM based on a data set in Proxmox. The issue is that you've got to get out of Proxmox's GUI and do some work on the command line and then fiddle with Proxmox's GUI to get it to recognize the thing that you did. And it doesn't scale very well. And I think you're still going to have most of those same problems if you take a one node out and use it as pure storage. But again, the more important thing is, is just that Nick doesn't want to do that. He Basically, he wants one of his compute nodes to be able to do double duty as a storage node. And there's not really any particular reason he can't do that. Uh, you know, if we were talking about a larger production setting with a budget, I would recommend against that. But if we're talking about something home lab-ish or small business-ish even, you know, with an actively involved admin I'm not going to say that's something that you shouldn't do. Double dipping one node to do both storage and compute is probably fine. Yeah, in this case, most of the defaults in Proxmox we're talking about are more how it creates the volume that's going to back your VM, which is not something FreeBSD or Ubuntu do for you anyway. And so switching to a, a more generic OS isn't necessarily going to avoid the problem. It's down to the VM manager part of it. Yeah, and, and also to be clear, so changing the vol block size in Proxmox's GUI is not difficult. That's a default, but it's not difficult to override. Unfortunately, you do need to do that at the time that you create the ZVOL in question. Uh, the VOL block size is not mutable later, the way record size on a, is on a data set. So you do need to get that correct. But it's not hard to get that correct in Proxmox's GUI. You don't have to leave the comfortable web UI for it. Where it really gets to be a pain in the butt is if you want to avoid the performance and management hassles of ZVOLs entirely and use raw files or QCOW2 files, either one, on data sets. Now you do absolutely have to get out of Proxmox's GUI. You've got to manually create a bunch of things, and then you've also kind of got to beat Proxmox over the head and make it recognize what you did to the point that basically... If you're willing to do all that, there's no reason left to use Proxmox in the first place. It would be easier just to do things the way that I do them on a bare vanilla Ubuntu or Debian or, or what have you. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com is the email address to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Rissington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.